For the last 20 or so weeks, we've been slowly unfolding the saga of Joshua, this man in his glorious book. And I hope you'll turn with me to Joshua chapter 5, a reminder about our context. The covenant people, by the time we've come to Joshua 5, have been redeemed, delivered from Egyptian bondage and slavery. They've wandered for 40 years after their disobedience in the promised land. Now they've crossed by the strong right hand of God into the promised land. The men of Israel have now been circumcised and healed. The Passover has been celebrated. And we have an important transitional note in Joshua 5, verse 12. Look carefully at it. The manna has now ceased. The Israelites can no longer sit still. This is a prod because the manna won't be coming down from heaven anymore. They have to get on the move and get into the land. The land where they sit won't sustain them. Now, there are somehow, somewhere between two to five million Israelites, as we said, a lot of mouths to feed. So they must begin, as of now, Joshua 5:12, to begin to conquer the land. And when we pick up the context in verse 13, we find Joshua pondering his next move while looking ahead of him at the seemingly impenetrable city of Jericho. Now, let me remind you who Joshua is at this point. He's a seasoned man. He's a veteran man. He spent the last 40 years, those 40 years from the age of 40 to 80, as Moses' second in command. He's now an 80-year-old man, but his vigor is not in the least bit dimmed. God is calling him now to step out onto the stage of history, to be the centerpiece of his providence. And as our context opens in verse 13, Joshua is looking at the city of Jericho that's right there in the plain in front of them thinking, How are we going to conquer this first city, this pivotal city, as we come into the promised land? Now, this text, I have to tell you, is one of the most glorious Old Testament texts that points to our Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, it's every preacher's duty and obligation to point to Christ as often as he can in the Word of God. There are some texts where it seems like you have to take a a pretty circuitous route to get to Jesus in the text, but this is not one of those texts. For this text, it turns out, is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope you have your Bible open to Joshua 5 and you can see that with me. We will see, certainly, the lesser Joshua. He's the subject of this book. But he's actually a minor character in this narrative because the major character is the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we see this man, the greater Joshua, in verse 13, this this man whom Joshua encounters, immediately our interest is piqued And we're intrigued by this man who sort of appears. And he doesn't just appear unarmed. He appears and he has a sword drawn. Look at him there in the text. He's ready for battle. And this man appears to Joshua. One of the things I I love about Joshua, when I was working construction right after I came back to Oklahoma City from my time in the far country, and, and my dad lined me up a job with Mr. Calloway, digging ditches and roofing houses and that sort of thing that's character building for an 18-year-old man. <clears throat> and I began to notice that there were, there were two types of people who drove up onto the construction site where we were building homes. There were guys who drove up, put the truck in park, listened to the radio for a while, slowly eased their way out of the truck, and they would walk very carefully over to you to talk. Then there were the guys who drove up, and as they were stopping, they were opening their door. And it was an exercise in could they put the truck in park by the time their foot hit the ground. That's Joshua. 
This is a man who has no quit in him. He has no reverse in him. When he sees this man with the drawn sword, I want you to notice what Joshua does. This explains 90% of what you need to know about Joshua. He doesn't think, I better call for backup. There's a man standing in front of me with a drawn sword. He doesn't say, I think I better try a diversionary tactic. We see there's a man opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And what do you suspect Joshua's going to do? Look at our text. And Joshua went to him. Doesn't that tell you everything? This is a man who has no fear, no cowardice. He hits life head on. I've heard Pastor Dodd say so many times when he's, when he's teaching men, he's saying a godly man, a godly man goes towards the trouble instead of away from it. And that's what we see with Joshua. He thinks this could be difficult. Well, I better march towards it. So you see the courage and strength that we were told about at the beginning of the book of Joshua that the Lord told him three times to be courageous. He's displaying that God-given fearlessness. He goes right up to this man who has a sword, a drawn sword in his hand, and he begins asking him questions about loyalty and who he's for. What I want us to do is to focus our attention on this man, the man with the drawn sword. There are at least four things that can be said about him about from this text today. And if there's any time you should see Christ in the Old Testament, other than just a few texts like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, this is one of those pivotal texts. And it says not only clear things about Christ, it says some things about Christ that the church of today desperately needs to hear. The church is largely in America in retreat mode. And when the church sees as effeminate and powerless their king and head, They desperately need the truth of this text. And so let me point out at least four things that can be said from this text. The first is, this person does something that's rare in Scripture. He receives worship. Look carefully at the text in verse 14. Joshua, after asking him the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? He says just one simple phrase. I come as the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua immediately gets it, he understands who it is, and he falls on his face to the earth and worships him. Now this is an amazing response. Joshua is a dignified man. This is not a, a man who's a buffoon and given to clownish displays. But notice what he does without the least bit of hesitation. It doesn't trouble him to say, in the presence of the living God, I should fall and prostrate myself before him. In our culture, especially in Presbyterian world, being dignified means, and it's maddening by the way, being dignified means, especially for men, when God's people sing, I'll be dignified by standing apart with my arms closed and no singing for me. That sings somehow undignified. No, in the presence of Christ, you give the proper response. And so if the proper response is to sing with God's people, that's what's dignified. That's what's holy. That's what's appropriate. And the proper response when you encounter Christ in a theophany, as we're going to see and define, the proper response is to recognize your position and fall down before him in worship and delight. Joshua doesn't say, what about my dignity? I'll get the knees of my pants dirty. He drops before him because he knows that's the appropriate thing to do. He doesn't want to engage in endless debates. Perhaps you're right now saying, oh, Carl, I'm not so sure I see. I'm looking for Jesus. I just see a man with a sword. How do I know this is the Lord Jesus? I think you might be making a pretty big leap here, Carl. Let me point out to you the process of elimination by which we quickly, quickly find out that this is Christ. The first thing about him is 
is this man with the drawn sword receives worship. Do you notice what happens in Scripture when men and angels, people try to worship them? Let me go through this with you systematically. We're going to play detective here, and we're going to engage in a process of elimination. Look at Acts chapter 14. Let me show you what the response of godly men is when people try to worship them. When someone attempts to worship them, they don't receive it. In Acts chapter 14, Paul is preaching the gospel. He goes to Lystra, and he does something amazing by the Spirit's power. In Acts 14, verse 8, if you're looking at it in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting. He's a cripple from his mother's womb who'd never walked. The man had a, a birth defect. And this man heard Paul speaking. Paul observes him intently and sees that he has faith to be healed. And with a loud voice, Paul says, stand up straight on your feet. And the man leaped up and walked. Now, when the people there surrounding saw what Paul had done, they, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, do you see what just happened? Because Paul does this miraculous healing by the power of the Holy Spirit, the people, these pagan Greeks who have no other category, say, it's Zeus and Hermes. They're polytheistic pagans, and they say, our gods, they're with us, and they're going to worship. In fact, look what the chief priest of Zeus does in the next verse. Verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temples in front of their city, brought oxen and garland to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when Barnabas and Paul saw this, they tore their clothes, a universal sign of mourning and distress. And they're saying, no, this is the height of wickedness. They tore their clothes, ran in among the multitude, and cried out and said, men, why are you doing these things? We're men with the same nature as you. We preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. You see what Paul does? Immediately, as soon as people try to worship him, he says, no, you've got it wrong. This is theology 101. It's the first lesson in your flunking. You're getting it wrong. Always and only worship God. And I'm not that person, Paul says. I'm just the messenger. And so look what he does in Acts 14, verse 15. He points them to the true and living God. He will not receive adoration. Paul knows this principle well. That glory from any man to any creature must always be deflected to God. Let me say that again because this principle is huge. Any glory heaped upon a creature must always be deflected to God. Anytime someone starts to praise you, you know what the right response is, to always deflect to God. That's the believer's understood posture. When someone starts heaping praise on you, you had better in that moment deflect the praise to God. That's the believer's stance. They will not receive glory. They know that their chief end is to glorify God. We just confessed that a moment ago. So Paul won't receive glory, much less worship. And so this man we find with the drawn sword in Joshua 5, he's certainly not just a man because a godly man knows what to do when somebody falls prostrate before him. He deflects worship. But the man in Joshua 5, not only is he not just a man, he's certainly not just an angel. Because angels know better also. Look at Revelation 19. I know I'm causing you to work a lot tonight, but I want you to see this principle from all of Scripture. Look at Revelation 19, and I want you to see what angels do when men try to worship them. 
Now, let me just go ahead and warn you. I'm going to set you up in case nobody else tells you between the time when you get to heaven. It's bad form to try to worship an angel. And so I'm just telling you so you won't be embarrassed then and have to be rebuked. Saying that tongue-in-cheek, of course. In Revelation 19, John is overtaken with the glories of heaven. And we've just come from a text in Revelation 19 where the whole throng of heaven is praising God. And apparently the angel who's there is so brilliant and glorious that just for a moment, John is overcome. And look at Revelation 19.10. I fell at his feet to worship him. And by the way, don't ever say to me, well, Carl, I could never fall into idolatry. I couldn't fall into faulty understandings. If John the Apostle can, you can too. And look at what the angel says to him immediately. He says, see that you do not do that. This is a rebuke. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren. In other words, he's a creature. The angel understands that in the, the biggest first divide in antithesis, the divide is between creator and creature. This angel in the moment may appear brilliant, but he's still a creature. And so the angel says to John, no creature can receive worship. And so go back to Joshua 5, our text, and let's follow our detective process of elimination. It's not a man standing in front of Joshua. A man would, re would deflect worship to God. It's not an angel. An angel would say, cut that out. This can only be one person. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we know about this man is he's someone who receives worship. The second thing that can be said about him is this man makes the place holy. Look at verse 15, what this man says to him. What other person's presence, by the way, can make any geographical place holy? Only God the Son. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot. The place where you stand is holy. This is never said if we're talking about an angel. In Luke chapter 2, the angel appears to the shepherds to announce Christ's birth, and he doesn't demand, even though it's the most glorious announcement ever, he doesn't say to the shepherds, as he an angel appears in the heavens, now you shepherds, get your shepherd's shoes off, because my angelic presence being here makes it holy ground. He doesn't do that at all, because he's a creature. In Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to announce the birth of Christ, he doesn't say, Mary, I'm Gabriel, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, because an angel's here. He doesn't do it. Only Christ makes the place holy. I want you to see how Joshua knows how to act. This is brilliant. It shows you Joshua's deep-rooted dependence upon the scriptures, the written word of God. You know, a lot of people, their greatest fear in life is that they're going to do something inappropriate at the wrong time, and they live in social fear of that. They're not going to know how to act in just the right situation, and so they go to classes to know which fork to eat with. I've never been to that class. And they go to classes to know which dress to wear, how to step at the cotillion or at the prom, and they're deathly afraid of doing something inappropriate at the wrong time. They use words like, oh, I'd just be mortified. Look what Joshua does. He falls down, which is the right thing to do, and he takes off his shoes, which is the right thing to do. How did he know how to be so appropriate in that moment? He knew it from the word of God. Now, do you remember what Joshua's Bible was? Remember what his written word was? At that time, the canon of Scripture was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, maybe Job. 
And so Joshua has the Pentateuch. He has the first five books. And you know what happens when he reads the Pentateuch? Look at Exodus 3, and I'll show you how Joshua knows how to take off his sandals when he's told he's on holy ground. Joshua knew this not only from reading scripture, but he knew it because his mentor Moses had told him over and over again of the saga. Just 45 years before this moment when Joshua encounters the man with the drawn sword, this saga happens. In Exodus 3, we read, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now let me point out some interesting parallels. I think they're fascinating. When Moses has his experience with the burning bush, with this Christophany, in Exodus 3, he's 80 years old. Joshua, in our text, is in Joshua 5, is 80 years old. Both of them have been on hold for the last 40 years. My friends, don't despair right now if you're saying, Carl, I'm 50 years old. The Lord seems to have me on hold. I'm so frustrated. I have all these gifts that God's people need, and the Lord doesn't seem to be raising me up into some position of leadership. Wait about another 30 years. Because the Lord's process of maturing and ripening is very slow and deliberate. If you're here tonight and you're 25 and you've got Calvin's Institutes memorized, now ripen under sanctification for another 30 or 40 years. Walk through a few decades of trials and disappointments. That's what we see with both Moses and Joshua. But what do we see Moses? What do we find him doing? What's been his glorious preparation to lead the people of God? He's been following around a herd of sheep for 40 years. That's pretty good training to be a pastor and a leader, isn't it? Well, Moses, we see Exodus 3, 2. The angel of the Lord, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I'll turn aside now and see this great sight, why the bush doesn't burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God... This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. And then you find the exact same phrase that the man with the drawn sword says to Joshua. Forty years later in Joshua 5. Take the sandals off your feet. The place where you stand is holy ground. Do you know how Joshua knew what to do when Joshua 5 occurred? Because he'd already read about it in Exodus 3. He knew what was appropriate. He knew, fall down, take off your shoes. That's the right thing to do when Christ, when God the Son appears. The second thing that's said of this man in Joshua 5, not only is he a man who receives worship, he's a man who makes the place holy. He has the legitimate right to say, take off your shoes. Now let me tell you, parents, I'm all for your kids honoring you. I'm all for the fifth commandment. But you've overstepped if when your kids come into the room to your den, you say, kids, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. The only person who can say that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only person who can demand reverence is God the Son. The third sign that we know that this is Christ is that he's finally just identified as the Lord when he speaks. Now there's an unfortunate chapter division here between chapter 5 and 6. And let me point out what happens between chapter 5 and 6. That the Lord doesn't come to meet with Joshua just to tell him to take off his sandal because he's on holy ground. He comes to meet with him as he'd done with Moses a generation earlier to say, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Now I'm going to give you a call. Go lead my people out of bondage. 
And now he does the same thing with Joshua. Because if the narrative ended at verse 15, all we'd know is this man has told Joshua to worship me and take off your shoes. But this man with the drawn sword goes on and gives Joshua, after he worships, he gives Joshua worships, uh, orders. That's why he's there. Pick up the narrative in verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua. Do you see this? The conversation is still going on. The chapter break probably came at a bad place there. Because it's the same conversation, same context. It is the Lord who said to Joshua. He's the man with the drawn sword. He doesn't just say, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Okay, there, you did that. I'm going to leave now. He comes to say, I'm a soldier. I'm going to lead you into Jericho, and we're going to triumph. And so the third way that we know that it's Christ is we're just simply told in verse 2. Can you see that there? This is the Lord. It's told us as a flat statement. The person whom Joshua can see, we're told in verse 13, Joshua lifted up his eyes and looked. The person whom Joshua can see visibly, just like you can turn to the person sitting next to you and see them, this person is the Lord. What's going on here? This is what's known in theological terms as a theophany, coming from two words meaning God and phanos. Theos meaning God, phanos meaning appearing, that is an appearing of God. To be technically precise, this is not a theophany but a Christophany because all Old Testament manifestations of God in human form are Christophanies. This is a theological paradigm. All manifestations of God in the Old Testament in human form were appearances of the second person of the Trinity. And as such, their purpose was not only to provide immediate revelation and guidance, but to prepare the people of God to whet their appetite for the 33-year incarnation of Christ. A couple other Christophanies would leap to mind. Think about Abraham in Genesis 18 when the men came to his tent. There's the Lord Jesus. Or think about Jacob in Genesis 32 when he wrestles with a man all night. That's the Lord Jesus. This is a common occurrence when Christ comes to his people to give them a special message and to whet the appetite of his people for the 33-year appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth thing we can say about this person, and this is something that the church desperately needs to hear in an effeminate generation. I don't need to convince you that we're in an effeminate generation. In Ivy League schools between 2020 and 2024, the number of male students who now want to be women and are somewhere in the process of transgendering has gone up 400%. This is Ivy League schools. These are the smart guys, right? Our culture can't even tell the difference between a man and a woman. And men want to be women. We're an effeminate generation. In a culture like that, the church desperately needs to see this man. Look at him. He's a warrior. He's not the least bit shy. He's not fearful. Look at verse 13 and 14. We see this man who stood opposite Joshua with his sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and asked him the tough question. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, no. So Joshua asked him a yes-no question, an antithetical question. Joshua, of course, sees no gray. He's all black and white. He's binary. He sees the world biblically. He sees it in terms of the antithesis. He says, listen, man with a drawn sword, 
There's only two sides of an issue here. There's not four sides of an issue. You're either for us or you're against us. And he's saying this to the man with the drawn sword. Joshua's a bold man. And notice how the Lord Jesus Christ responds. Look carefully at his response. He doesn't say, I'm for you or I'm against you. He says of Joshua, you're asking the wrong question. He says, the answer to your question is no. I'm not for you nor for your adversaries. But what he tells Joshua immediately is, he's come to fight. He's got a drawn sword. This is a man who directs and commands an army. We're told in verse 14, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, don't stumble at this point. Stay with me. He's not saying that he's come to nudge Joshua aside and be the commander of Israel's army. Because what he commands is a much more powerful army. Do you know what his army is? Keep one finger here and look at Psalm 103. And I want you to get just a glimpse at his army. In Psalm 103, we read these words in Psalm 103, verse 19. It's speaking of the rule of Christ, the dominion of Christ, the power of Christ. And we read in Psalm 103, 19, The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you, his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you, his hosts. And it's the same word that's used in Joshua 5. It speaks of military angels. Angels who fight battles under Christ's command. The army of the host of the Lord. That's who he's saying to Joshua under his command. He has legions of angels prepared for battle. This gives our Lord Jesus words in Matthew 26 even more power. You remember when Jesus has been arrested and Peter draws his sword to defend Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword back in its place. Don't you know that I can appeal to my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Why will the father do that? Because Christ is the man with the drawn sword. And he's the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, someone right here, right now, because they grew up under the influence of dispensationalism, is saying, well, Carl, all this is very interesting. It's very Old Testament. And everyone knows the Old Testament was harsh, and the New Testament is nice and sweet. And Jesus has a transformation when he comes to the New Testament. He's put off any sort of militaristic impulse. He's a pacifist now. My friends, let me show you the Jesus of the New Testament. Look at Revelation 19. And let me show you a true picture of our Christ. This is Christ the warrior. You do a great disservice to Jesus if you see him as an effeminate yielding to the culture and his enemies savior. The picture of Jesus that the gospels, the New Testament and the Old Testament paint for us is that Jesus is a mighty warrior who subdues his enemies. Look at Revelation 19:11. Tell me if this looks like a mild retiring savior. I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. He's a warrior. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. This is a warrior. 
This is someone ready for battle. Our Jesus, this picture tells us, is going to triumph over all his and our enemies. Right now, there's a, a raging debate. You know about this, right? Both in the evangelical world and the secular media about the culture wars and what the next step is and who will prevail. Let me tell you who will prevail. Christ will prevail. He's the commander of the armies of the Lord. No matter how much a God-hating media and culture and government and academia shake their fist at Jesus, the day is coming fast when every knee will bow before Jesus. They will be subdued under Jesus as the commander of the armies of the Lord. Don't wave the white flag and say, I guess the culture is smarter and wiser and stronger, and I want to be on the right side of history. My friend, the way to be on the right side of history is to serve a king who's a warrior, the commander of the armies of the Lord. Now, why does Jesus appear as a soldier? This, we're going to get technical for a moment. Why does Jesus appear as a soldier now, in this moment, with a drawn sword? A drawn sword means he's ready for action. And let me give you some interpretive insights. A long course of fighting lay before the Israelites. This is just beginning. A long course of fighting lay before the Israelites before they could get possession of the whole land. And the sword in the hand of Christ is the assurance that he would fight with them, for them, and in front of them. And it's also a clear intimation of the judgment of Christ. Because what Christ holds in his hand is not just the sword of the warrior who comes and says, I want to steal this territory because I'm stronger. He's coming with a specific kind of sword. Look at it carefully. It's the judicial sword. Do you remember way back in Genesis 15 when God promised this land, the promised land to Abraham? And he said, but I can't let you go into the promised land just yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, so wait for 400 years. But now, in Joshua 5 and 6, the wickedness of the Amorites is full. Their day of judgment has arrived. Christ has come bearing the judicial sword in his hand. The long-suffering of a patient, righteous God is exhausted. And Joshua and his people were the instruments by whom the judicial punishment was going to be inflicted. The captain of the Lord's host had drawn his sword from its sheath to show that the judgment of the wicked was about to begin. So back in our text, why does this man, or when does this man, appear to Joshua? This man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain with the drawn sword, appears to Joshua after he's obeyed and at great risk and engaged in the sacraments. Remember last week when we saw that risk? Here's Joshua who simply obeyed what he was told and he engaged in the sacrament of circumcision, circumcising a million warriors, creating something known as the hill of the foreskins. And no, don't ask me any more about that. Under the watchful eye of the citizens of Jericho, his obedience seemed crazy. You're going to cripple a million warriors while their enemies are standing watching from the hills of the, the walls of Jericho? But he obeyed. As soon as he obeys, that's when Christ appears to him. This confirms the principle of John 14 where Jesus says, He who has my commandments and does them, he it is who loves me, and I will disclose myself to him. I'm not telling you that if you obey Christ's commands that he'll come to you in the same visible manner that Jesus will be standing in your driveway when you go home with a drawn sword. But what I am telling you is the principle holds. Who enjoys more of the presence of Christ and the disclosure of truth? Those who obey Christ. When did he appear to Joshua? 
after Joshua's obedience and at the time of need. When Joshua needs wisdom on how to proceed, he needs military strategy, he needs strength and courage, the man with the drawn sword appears. What did he demand of Joshua? Look carefully at your text. Does he begin with military strategy? Okay, Joshua, get the maps out, get the markers, because here's what I'm demanding. Okay, you take this group of men and faint over there on the south side of Jericho, and then take this group of men and charge towards the center gate. No. You know what he demands of Joshua? Take off your sandals. And doesn't this teach us about the priority of worship in holiness? Adoration must come before action. Prostration must come before confrontation. There's some folks here tonight who are sort of spiritually hyperactive. Carl, hurry up and get the benediction over with. I've got to get out there. I've got to go evangelize. I've got to win the world. I've got to be about kingdom business. The culture wars are calling my name. Slow down. Worship in holiness first. Well, Carl, I just don't see any benefit in worship. Nothing's getting done. The man with the drawn sword says, Joshua, your first priority. I see, I see the city of Jericho. I see them with their ramparts and their bows and arrows and their catapults. I know. Take off your shoes. Worship and adore. You see, worship, doxology, is always the precursor to action. The church has always been marked by this imbalance. You have the people like the monastics who just wanted to worship and didn't want to go out and be active in the kingdom. Then you have the sin of today of people who are all action, no worship. We need to learn the balance of saying, we will get to action, but first, worship. We're to be a people who are marked by a commitment to deep and regular biblical worship, then action. And we need to learn this principle, only worship rightly prepares us for kingdom action. What is it that energizes us, strengthens us to go out into the world and see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of Christ? It's worship. Over and over again, we need to be reminded the most important hours of the week are these hours right now. This is the pinnacle of the week. Out of this flows everything. Out of worship flows action. Out of worship flows service. And that's the principle we see. What does the man with the drawn sword demand of Joshua first? Worship. Let me make a few applications from this text to us. Let me ask you, when was the last time you set aside all your important plans, kingdom strategies, meeting, and simply said, all that can wait. We need to worship before all of our organization and action. I'm saying this to us as a congregation. At Woodruff we we take seriously the business of doing things decently and in order. If you don't know that and you're here for the first time today, that's the Presbyterian motto. It's put on our children's diapers, decently and in order. And we have committees and we have teams and planning groups and all this sort of thing with our organization and orderliness. But is it possible that we've forgotten how to take off our sandals and worship Christ? Is it possible that we've been about the wrong thing as the priority with all of our meetings and committees and we've forgotten everything else? Order must always be a pale, distant second to worship. And delighting, not just in worship, but heartfelt passion at worship in holiness. Worship that grasps for the glory of God. That must ever be our priority. We would say in our flesh, oh Lord, that's fine, sandals off, okay, well, but hurry up and tell me how I'm going to conquer the city. The man with the drawn sword is saying to you as well, slow down, take off your sandals, Fall on your face and worship me.
There's a second application. There are many of you today who are fearful when you think about kingdom act, action, especially evangelism, impacting your neighbor or your coworker. I've had these conversations with some of you. Carl, I've got to tell you, I'm fearful. That's just who I am. I'm racked with fear. I'm afraid I'm going to go to the office, and if I bring up the Lord Jesus Christ, my coworkers are going to ask me some question, and I don't know the answer, and I'm afraid I'll look stupid and let Christ down. I could be strong if I were like Joshua. You know, God promised to be with Joshua, Carl. Remember what God told Joshua in Joshua 1.5. Just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. Remember the people in Joshua 1 prayed for God to be with Joshua. They said, only may the Lord your God be with you. Carl, I could be strong too then. I could witness. I'm the only Christian in my school. I'm the only believer in my workplace, in my neighborhood. I could be strong if I had God with me. My friend, you do. The man with the drawn sword who promises to be with Joshua and lead him and give him victory is the same Lord Jesus who says at the close of the Great Commission, you know that mandate that tells us to go and make disciples? That same man with the drawn sword, the captain of the host of the Lord's army says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You've fallen into practical atheism if you think you're walking into that office alone. If you think you're going across the street to welcome those new neighbors and begin to plant seeds of evangelism, you're not alone. You have the man with the drawn sword next to you. You have the one who promised his presence to be with you to the end of the age. Christ, who conquers all his enemies, is with you. You have nothing to fear. Another application. This text is a powerful reminder of who's in command. The Lord came not just to Joshua to help him, but to lead him. We fall into this. You hear it even in our prayers. We ask the Lord to help us. And by that, that's almost sort of a Freudian strip. We want the Lord to help us, and we know what we mean by that. Lord, I've got an agenda. Would you get on board and prop me up from behind, and you help, but don't lead. I'm going to lead, Lord. You get behind him. You know, help, push. Well, notice that's sort of what Joshua is doing here in verse 13. Look at our text. He says to the man with the drawn sword, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And notice what the answer of Christ is. No. In verse 14, you look at that, you think, well, that's not the answer. You're either looking for, I'm for you, or I'm for your adversaries. And Jesus says, no, you've missed it. You've missed the point that I'm not on anybody's team. Other people are on my team. Do you get why Jesus says this? I'm not on your team, Joshua. Other people are on my team. He doesn't say, even though he'll prove that the Lord Jesus is with his covenant people, he'll prove to be with Joshua, but he's trying to communicate a point to Joshua. I'm not going to get on your team. I'm not going to have any human agenda that I'll endorse. You get on my team, Joshua, and we fail miserably. The church in the 20th and 21st century has fallen for this again and again. Well, you know the Lord. He's on my political party's team. That's foolishness. We need to hear this over and over again. The Lord's not going to get behind any human agenda, especially a political one. Do you know what team the Lord is on? Here's what team he's on. He's building the kingdom of God, not about any human agenda. The next time you want to baptize your political agenda or your economic agenda and say, the Lord's on my team, go back to Joshua 5. And be reminded, Christ's agenda comes under no a party affiliation. He's building his kingdom. The two would fight together, certainly Joshua and the man with the drawn sword. But Joshua would be following 
the commander of the armies of the Lord in his cause and not the other way around. Christ is telling Joshua, I'm the only king and head of the church. And then one final application. There's a recurrent phrase that occurs all through the book of Joshua, and it's in verse 15. Look carefully at it. Perhaps you read by it when you read verse 15, because in looking at the glories of the doxological nature of the worship here, you skipped over this tiny little phrase at the end of verse 15. Look what we're told. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy, and then listen to these marvelous, astounding, rare words. And Joshua did so. Did you know this is the most recurrent phrase in all the book of Joshua? And we take it for granted. Here's an 80-year-old man. He has a lot of dignity. He's the leader of millions. And you know, you would think it's a, it's a tiny thing to remove one's sandal. It's sort of like a bow or a curtsy or a salute. It just takes five seconds. Joshua could have said, well, you know, Lord, I, I revere you in my heart. But you know, my sandals, I don't want to get my feet dirty. And this is childish, don't you think, Commander, to engage in these sort of outward demonstrations? No. Joshua won't settle for anything less than internally motivated external obedience, gospel obedience. He'll settle for nothing less than absolute fidelity to God's commands. He's a picture from beginning to end, from Joshua 1 to Joshua 24, of perfect submission. Notice what's recorded for us forever in the Holy Scripture. Joshua's obedience and the Lord's approbation of it. Look at the last words of chapter 5. And Joshua did so. Joshua's question, notice what he says at the end of verse 14. What does my Lord have to say to his servant? It's far more than a curiosity. It's a lifestyle. Joshua's saying, Lord, you tell me what to do and I'll salute. And what makes Joshua such a powerful tool in the Lord's hand is his unquestioning, immediate, joyful, complete obedience. That's the secret of Joshua's power and usefulness in the Christian life. Unquestioning, immediate, joyful, complete obedience. There's one thing that makes Joshua the man he is, and that's his glad obedience. Don't look at him and say, well, if I could just get his military skill, if I could just get his organizational skills. There's one lesson God wants you to learn from the life of Joshua and imitate. His absolute obedience to the commands of God. That's the lesson you and I need to learn. And so let me ask you, could the last phrase of chapter 5 in verse 15 ever be said of you? He did so. She did so. Or would we have to record? Well, he thought about it. He discussed it. He planned it. He prayed about it. Can it be said of you? He did so. Could it be said of you, teenager, the Lord said to obey your parents, and he did so. Could it be said of you, the Lord told you to give him the tithe, and he did so. That's the mark of the people of God. Is that a description of you? May the Lord give us grace, Holy Spirit outpoured grace, to follow obediently and humbly our commander as he conquers all our enemies before us. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, we thank you that you have already triumphed. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be bold men like Joshua, that our delight would come from obeying you quickly.
Lord, how we long to see you lifted higher and higher in the eyes of the world. And so, Lord, we would plead with you. Come quickly. Subdue the nations under your reign. Lord, we long for that day when indeed every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Lord, cause us to be busy about your agenda instead of seeking your help with our agenda. Lord, you have told us what to be about, about making disciples, teaching them, baptizing them. Lord, may that ever be our agenda. Our strategy is to follow you in the kingdom commission. And so, Lord, we would enlist in your army. We would